This message was presented at the DYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.dycweb.org. We want to welcome uh, the fitness fanatics who've hiked all the way over to this remote location. For those who don't know me, I'm Dr. Stephen Bauer from Southern Adventist University. I teach theology and ethics, and sometimes pinch hit in biblical Hebrew. And I like to say when I teach Hebrew that when I get done, I hope it's not all Greek to them. And so I'm uh, deriving from some of my sanctuary materials that I do in Christian theology. And uh, Eric Lowe asked me to present here, so it's a pleasure. My first GYC, I've done an SEYC. And uh, uh, here comes some more faithful few. We're glad to see you here. Before I get started, why don't we have a word of prayer? I want to thank you, Lord, for being with us. And as we probe this wonderful topic, guide and direct us, be with those here and those who listen later uh, through the Internet, that your spirit would open our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm not certain I'll use all, quote, 50 minutes. Uh, I figure the seat can only stand so much, but we'll see uh, uh, how many slides. I usually don't do this with slides, so I'm trying something uh, new. David Vetter, known as the Bubble Boy, was born in 1971 with severe combined immunodeficiency, SCID for short, and he was forced to live in a specially constructed sterile plastic bubble from birth until his death at age 12. Water, air, food, diapers, clothes, all had to be sterilized before being put into his chamber. So they had an adjoining chamber where they sterilized it in ethylene oxide gas for four hours at 140 degrees. Then it had to be aerated for one to seven days. Then it could go into his chamber. Here is a picture of him in his chamber, the airlock, and I presume the sterilization uh, chamber. Twelve years in there. You can't touch him because the bacteria from your skin will infect him and kill him. And so all touch has to be through these gloves that are built in to the bubble this way. NASA did make him a little spacesuit, but it was so cumbersome he only used it a few times uh, where he could get out of his bubble and actually interact a bit. Um, you can see they put their logo there on it. But think about it now from the mother's perspective and the father's perspective. You have a child that you love, but if you kiss him or touch him, you'll kill him. And the heartache of always having a barrier between you and your child. When I saw that picture, I, it still gets me. And I thought, what an illustration of God's problem 
Man sinned and God loves man. But if he comes near to us, his glory will kill us. And so God's got a problem he's got to solve. How can I get close to my child and show him I love him without killing him? Imagine a life, you can't even really hug your child unless he's in the spacesuit. And that didn't come along for years, you know. All the natural instincts have to be thwarted. You can do nothing spontaneously because it's all got to go through that gas and a day to seven of cooling off, right? And you want to be close and yet so close yet so far. God has a similar problem in that He wants to be close to us. And yet, if He gets direct contact, it would kill us. And so we find in the sanctuary, God says, let them make me a sanctuary, Exodus 25, that I may dwell in their midst. In other words, to make it possible for me to dwell in their midst. And in Exodus 33, after the golden calf, he says, I won't go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Again, direct contact with God as sinful man, his glory will be a consuming destructive fire. How can God draw near to man and draw man near to himself? He says, I'm going to do it through the sanctuary. And this, there it is. So the goal of the sanctuary is to make it possible for man and God to come together. It's not to make it difficult. It's to make it safe. And sometimes the way we present the sanctuary gets so complicated that you walk away with this big mass of information and you're saying, what does this mean to me in real life? I think God intended the sanctuary to be simple and understandable, not complicated and... I guess complicated is enough. And sometimes when I've read on the sanctuary or listened on the sanctuary, you know, there were three flowers on the corner of the table and that represents the Trinity and there were, you know, blue threads and, and you have all this stimulation. You go home and say, so what? What difference does it make? I want to simplify that. And I'd like to propose that there's an easier way to approach a sanctuary. But before we get to that easier way, let's just review our geography. For those who just came in, um, we've got some handouts here that have a little map of the sanctuary that I'm about to use. I'm wondering if we just kind of grab a chair and put it in the middle of that junction, then people will see it when they come in. They can pick it right up. Uh,
Now for our cartographers, uh, the map is upside down so that we can go left or right on it. Um, so north is down, as you can see with the little compass rows here. And of course this is not to scale or it wouldn't fit in my screen. We have a courtyard that's surrounded um, the uh, whole complex with the gate on the east. And so the direction of the worship was oriented toward the west. And I'm thinking spontaneously of that passage in Ezekiel around 8 and 9, where the people are in the courtyard and they were facing the rising sun. So if you're in the courtyard facing the rising sun, where is the sanctuary relative to you? On your back. And I've wondered, perhaps, if that might symbolize the fact that, see, worshiping the rising sun was what pagans did. And God says, I'm going to take my worship and make it 180 degrees different. I think that God calls us to be different from the world. And not that there won't be common elements, because there are the artistry and so forth of the sanctuary borrows from the local culture of art and, and so forth and so on. But the philosophical, theological orientation of the worship and content of the worship was 180 degrees out of kilter with the pagans around them. They may have used local musical forms and, and local art forms and local dress forms, etc. But the doctrinal, theological, spiritual philosophical content was radically different in worldview from what was around them. And it's that worldview issue that I think we point to here in the sanctuary. And so we have this courtyard with one way in, and then in the outer outside, well before we get to the outside, we have the sanctuary itself with the holy place, its door also on the east end, and then that was the only way to the most holy place. Now we go to the furnishings, and again we'll start out in the courtyard in the open air. We had the bronze altar of burnt offering. Uh, King James says brass, but brass hadn't been invented yet, and so this is the late Bronze Age. And the bronze laver for washing uh, etc. Then we go into the holy place and everything under cover is gold. So we have the golden lampstand on the south and this is a replica that I photographed on display in Jerusalem. And uh, according to their archaeological research, because of course they believe uh, that they're going to rebuild the temple and that they're going to reinstitute the sacrifices and so they have built apparently the furnishings, and they're waiting until God miraculously gets rid of that Dome of the Rock so they can rebuild their sanctuary. And in the meantime, they have this out uh, in a Lexon case out in the open air where you can walk around it and look at it. And so I thought that was a very interesting, around as tall as me. Um, oops, I got a double play. So the close-up of the... Uh, capitals, etc., and they had a whole excursus on it 
and longing for the day when it would be put into use in the proper sanctuary across the valley uh, on the Temple Mountain. We also have the table of showbread, also called the bread of the presence on the north side, the golden altar of incense before the veil, and finally the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. Now, those of us who have done our Bible readings, <coughs> you got six chapters of build a table so many cubits long, so many cubits wide, so many cubits tall, and put three flowers on this corner and two flowers on that corner and three leaves here and gory detail after detail. And when you're trying to read your Bible through in the year, this is the section that kills me. After 35th flower, you know, you're... And you wade through it for six chapters. Detail after detail after detail after detail. Ad nauseum. And then when it's all said and done, you have the golden calf incident, and then Moses builds it. And it repeats all the details. He puts so many flowers on this corner and so many leaves on that corner, and you go through it all over again. And you're saying, Lord, if this is your holy word, why is all this stuff here? What am I supposed to get out of this? It's putting me to sleep. And so our solution is to try to force Christ into every piece of dust, nook and cranny, whether it makes sense or not. And perhaps we've missed a point. Why all these details? It sticks to me. God did not leave a whole lot for Moses to do on his own devising. And this is an object lesson of the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation is entirely crafted by God. We don't have negotiating privileges. All the details of the plan of salvation are supplied by God, not by you, not by me. We have to surrender to God's appointed way. And so God did not leave a whole lot of room for human addition and creativity because he's trying to teach us that we have to surrender to his appointed way. Salvation is not a negotiated settlement. It is a gracious gift that we receive on and surrender to God's terms. And so when I read these sections now, I read it through that lens of reminding me, Bauer, you've got to surrender to God's terms. You don't have negotiating power. You have to accept by faith God's prescribed way. And so I think that's an important function. A second one, and I can't remember if, who I got it from. It was a radio broadcast um, I don't think it was Alastair Begg, but it was a guy with a similar accent uh, from the Cleveland, Ohio area. 
So I'll give rough credit where credit is due. He made a very interesting point. Because in between the instructions and the construction, we have the golden calf, where people already break the Ten Commandments and worship an idol. And so we have the whole aftermath of grinding up the calf and burning it and mixing it into water and making the people drink it and all this stuff. And the people, and this is where the text I had where God says, I cannot go up among you because I'll consume you on the way. And so as they built the tabernacle at this point, where was it located? Outside the camp. It was not in the middle. It was out away from the camp. And when Moses wants to go to talk to God, what's he, he has to leave the camp and go trotting off this safe distance to the tent of meeting and meet with God. And it's at this point that we get the details of the construction and boy, these people are sorry for their golden calf incident and they're going to get over this and boy, they obey God to the letter of the law, to the last umlaut, to put it in German. To the last yod in Hebrew. To the last dot of the I, cross of the T, they obey perfectly. For six months or more. And God is outside the... My phone is going off. I need to put it into airplane mode and then it won't receive. They obey perfectly for six or more months. They do everything God prescribes. They put off their ornaments to show they're sorry for their sin. And God stays outside the sanctuary, outside the camp. Because perfect obedience does not atone for past sin. Doesn't solve the problem that's underlying. When could they move the whole thing in? when the sanctuary was inaugurated through sacrifice. And once we have the death of the sacrifice, now the sanctuary comes in. Because obedience alone is not sufficient. We need more than good works because of our sins. I like to illustrate it this way, because Paul says in Galatians 3, he says, um, cursed is the one who doesn't do everything written in the law. What's the point? If you're going to be saved by obedience, how many mistakes can you afford to make? Zilch. Because obedience exhausts the present duty. It is as if 
you were on a magical world where your budget is $4,000 a month. And lo and behold, your rent, insurance, electric bill, food, no matter how you play with it, it always comes out exactly $4,000 a month. Not a penny more, not a penny less. And in this world, if you fall into debt, that's illegal. One month you say, you know, let me spend a buck on that baby Ruth bar. Or if you're a health reformer, the granola bar. And uh, I'll make it up next month. I'll scrimp and I'll save. And so you have 4,001 this month. Oops, you're a dollar in the hole. Next month you work, 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 and lo and behold, 4,000 and 4,000. You have no way to pay back the dollar. When you depend on works and your own merit, as soon as you mess up, you're sunk because there's no way to compensate. And so here, the details remind us Obey perfect, 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 but all that obedience without sacrifice. God is still distant. God is still far. We need more than good works for God to be able to touch us and us to touch God. And so I propose to you that instead of all the gory details, the focus of the sanctuary is how do I approach God? And in effect, coming through the gate, one, two, three, four, you've got a process that you can go through in your prayer life, a journey in your daily prayer through the steps of the sanctuary that leads you into a relationship with God. And so the sinners approach God through a protocol. And again, the protocol is not to make it difficult. It's to make it possible, to make it safe. And kind of like David Vedder, the bubble boy, God's had to put us in a bubble as a temporary measure while we heal the problem. Unfortunately for David, the bone marrow transplant that was supposed to heal him infected him and he died. At age 12. Now another good question. This is the overview session and then we'll start to get into the details the rest of the day. Is submitting to the protocol, you know, offering sacrifices and all this stuff, was this works righteousness the way some of our evangelical friends argue, right? Saved by works in the Old Testament, grace in the New Testament? I would argue, first of all, that by submitting to God's appointed way, this is an act of faith, not an act of merit. Let me illustrate it by asking the question, is God like Jehu? We're familiar, what is Jehu most noted for? His lead foot driving, right? 
Why was he driving with his lead foot? I like the King James, he driveth furiously. What was going on in that story where he was driving furiously? He was ousting Ahab and about to be installed as the new king, or the house of Ahab. Ahab had died, but he was throwing out the sons. Jezebel gets thrown over the railing, right? Etc., etc. And Jehu is now installed as king, and what's the first thing he did? We read about it in 2 Kings. When he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had wiped them out, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. Pretty stiff. All you Baal people, if you don't show up for the big GYC of Baaldom, off with your head or however he's going to do it, right? Because I'm going to outdo Ahab in serving Baal. And all the people said, praise Baal. We read in the yellow print here, but Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. And to summarize what happens, again, he lies. I'm going to serve Baal much. Come, let's have a big festival. If you're a Baal worshiper and don't show up, so of course they all show up. He threatens them with death. Once they're assembled, however... Then he told them to search out to make sure there were no Yahweh infiltrators mixed in. Went just Baal worshipers. Make sure there's no one who's a non-Baal worshiper. So we purge any of those infiltrators. Then they have their cultic sacrifice. And while they were having the sacrifice, Jehu's little army surrounds the joint. And when the sacrifice is done, the signal goes... And then the enforcers are told, if any of these people escape, to you. Nice guy. So here's Jehu saying, I'm a Baal worshiper, come worship with me. But he was actually deceiving them in order to bait and switch them in like a sting operation to wipe them out. How do you know if God is pulling a Jehu. God says, hey, I promise if you come through this protocol, everything will be good, etc. How do you know that he's just not luring you in on a sting operation? That's why it's an act of faith, folks. Because you're trusting that God will do what he promised and not pull the Jehu. You see, the pagan gods were into deceiving man and each other. They were quite a capricious lot, ends justified means, and you never knew what to expect out of the pagan gods, including Baal. Baal was the god of storm and thunder and rain, and sometimes he gives droughts. You don't know what he's up to. 
And in the mythology, in the lore of the mythology, it was, um, again, a very manipulative, unreliable lot. In contrast to that, the Bible describes, especially in the Old Testament Hebrew, God with the word chesed. Chesed is hard to put into English, but it's this, we often translate it loving kindness, but it's or steadfast love is probably the closest. But chesed has to do with that stable, reliable, I can count on you. You're faithful, you're not lying to me. Integrity. That whole ball of wax. And in contrast to the other gods, God is chesed. And I would argue that he is chesed by choice. I do not believe God is determined by his nature the way we are ours. He is a free moral agent. And we in his image are free moral agent. God cannot lie because he's chosen a character that cannot lie, not because he's without choice in the matter. And so God has chosen a character and a style that is chesed that makes him the best possible ruler of a loving, selfless universe. And that makes him different. He doesn't act on the same principles of these gods. These gods, to me, are merely an extrapolation of man. And they act like sinful man. It's sinful man on steroids. How is it that Israel is surrounded by this worldview of the pagan gods come out of slavery of Egypt who is in that worldview and suddenly comes up with this Hesed God? All the other thinkers of the day don't come up with chesed God. They come up with gods that are extrapolations of human nature. Suggest to me, I can't explain it except God revealed himself in a special way. And so the sanctuary was never works righteousness because you're trusting that God's appointed way is not a bait and switch like Jehu, but that he actually will do what he promised because he is trustworthy and reliable. And the word for faithfulness in Hebrew is amen, from which we get our amen. When the just shall live by faith, in Habakkuk, it's a form of amen. They live by faithfulness. And so it's because we trust that God will not pull a Jehu that Paul writes in Hebrews in sanctuary language, let us then with confidence. We don't approach God, oh, I hope he's not playing a trick on me. We approach God trusting, I know he's not playing a trick on me. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4.16, 10.22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The forgiveness in the sanctuary is not a reward based on merits of bringing a lamb, etc., etc. It is God fulfilling a promise he made to his children. Because if God didn't first make the promise, we can bring all the sacrifices in the world we want and it's not going to do an iota of good. But because the sacrifice is God's appointed way, when we yield in faith and stop rebelling, he says, that's what I want. I want you to stop rebelling and be surrendered. And the first step is we surrender to God's appointed way. And that's an act of faith. And he says, now you're surrendered, let's have a relationship. Let's put that past and build something new. And this is why Peter and Paul both talk about obeying the gospel. A lot of people, this is an oxymoronic combination, right? And both talk about obeying the gospel in the context of retributive judgment. Second Timothy, Paul talks about God inflicting vengeance at the end judgment on those who don't obey the gospel. Peter is talking about God reserving angels and stuff for judgment, and he says, if that's what happens to them, what will happen to those who don't obey the gospel? What does it mean to obey the gospel? I thought the gospel was about grace. It is precisely that I can't negotiate. Remember all the details issue? I surrender to God's appointed way because I trust his chesed and his amen, his faithfulness. And I obey by not trying to negotiate, not trying to add my own terms of engagement I obey by yielding to God's appointed way, even though it's foolishness to the Greek, right? And I trust it's unconditional surrender to God. And so first and foremost, the sanctuary teaches us that we must trust a loving God to do as he has promised and surrender to his appointed way. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.